We're in the book of Psalms tonight, which timing-wise is very appropriate given the fact that we've just ended two months of preaching in the Psalms. And so you've been a little bit accustomed to the Psalms over the last couple months on Sunday mornings. And we just spent two weeks in, in Job, and now we move into the largest book in the Bible. Before we jump in, you know I like to start off with some conversation starters. So I'll ask you, what is your favorite psalm? 19? Yeah, yeah ni- that would make sense. The heavens declare the glory of God, and then it, the second half moves into how uh, God speaks by his law as well. So nature speaks, his law speaks, the two books by which God has spoken. Yes, Diane. Psalm 77, and you know how much that one means to me too. Yeah. 107. Psalm 107. What about Psalm 107? Yeah. Well, if you read the first of the groupings, there's, I think, four parallel groupings, but the first one talks about God calling people from the north in the south and the east and the west and them not having a place to live but he brought them to a home and he met them there yeah and he gave me that song and i was in my third room in two years at the senior night yeah. so it was it was like god was speaking yeah. right into my heart yeah gave them a, a city to dwell in yep yeah and then it goes on he cuts the bars of iron and he frees them. Yeah, it's it's a story of his deliverance and the life that he gives. It's a beautiful song. Yes. So uh, every week, psalm, uh, different psalms on that. What's your favorite list? So right now it's Psalm 63, and after mm-hmm. half Jacob preached on that psalm, <laughs> I've been using it a lot with patients, mm-hmm. and it's really it's really resonated with mm-hmm. folks. Mm-hmm. Especially at the end of life, you have, to, you have to make some kind of decision about this life that's about to end. His steadfast love is better than life. You need something to hold on to when all that you've known is fading away. Yeah. Yes, Brenda. Psalm 121. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 121. 139 is beautiful. Yes, Deanna? 139 is yours? I like so. 27. What about 127? I don't know this. I don't know this one off the top of my head. It's a good one. Just David talking about letting the Lord's perfection go on his precepts and just respond to We could play this all night. Um, <laughs> these, the Psalms resonate with us in a way that other parts don't. I didn't ask you what's your favorite chapter in Numbers when we were there. Um, and, and that is, of course, not a knock against Numbers. But the function of the Psalms is very unique within Scripture. And I think Eric's description, we all were hinting at this, but Eric did a good job, I think, of describing the purpose of the Psalms is that we find ourselves alongside the psalmist, our hearts 
speaking what the psalmist is speaking. Uh, our hearts, our, our souls leaning upon the Lord the way the psalmists lean upon the Lord in the psalms. Uh, and this is not at all a, um, oh goodness, I'm going to totally butcher this. Uh, you have theology and you have doxology. Theology is the study of who God is, uh, the, the doctrines, if you will. Doxology is the worship and the praise. And, and we don't look at the Psalms uh, as doxology and as worship as independent of theology because the theology of the Psalms is rich. And it goes hand in hand with, uh, the, the it's, it's basically taking theology and applying it. So we're going to see in the Psalms that there's rich theology and there's rich doxology. And there is no dox, there's no theology uh, that's worth anything if it doesn't end in doxology. The goal of the doctrinal work is to worship God through it. And the Psalms do that. They take the theology and they apply it to the present and they worship in it. So I think it's a great training ground for us uh, to figure out how do we take these things that we know are true about God and then live them out in our hearts and in our minds as well. Uh, the Psalms are sometimes called the Psalter. It's a collection of 150 prayers, poems, or songs intended to be used in private, in family, and corporate worship of the church. You'll even see how some... Um, I'll just give you one example. The Songs of Ascent, uh, which are in Psalm 120 through 134, these are these were the songs that they would sing as they would ascend up into Jerusalem, I presume at Passover. I don't remember exactly what time of the year. They also have, uh, back in Psalm, I think Psalm 118, there are the Hillel Psalms that were sung at certain times during festivals. Uh, so there are various groupings that were very specifically used for the corporate worship of the people in Israel. And so when you read these, you realize these are designed not just to speak to my heart in my private devotions. They're also designed to lead the corporate worship, which is why you see us often called to worship with the psalm. You often hear uh, elements of the worship service structured according to what the psalms say. They're designed to be used that way. Yes, Amy. Oh, that's a good question. I've always assumed that that's a musical thing, uh, but it, it very well, it, it, I guess you're right in, in the sense of these were used in the corporate singing there in the temple. This would be written for the choir master to use there in the temple. That makes, that makes great sense to me. Of course, there's some speculation there because we're not exactly sure where those little um, inscriptions the little intros, those, those opening lines. We're not exactly sure where they came from. Some people claim that they're inspired. Uh, some people claim that they're not. Uh, I think they are reliable for the most part. Uh, and so as I preached through the Psalms, I actually was looking for, that gave, for some Psalms that gave us a little bit of historical context so that we could go through the Psalms understanding where they were coming from. But there are various approaches to how these are to be relied upon. Just those, those parts right before verse 1 starts. It's to the choir master according to uh, Jedithan or whatever, the, you know, whatever is in there. Stephen? Did we get any indication from like, Hebrew scholars and linguists that the Psalms would have had more melodic and rhythmic uh, functions than we sometimes get out of the English versions? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Hebrew poetry, if you read it as Hebrew poetry, it's far more flowing and 
and singable. Now, it's not necessarily, we think of iambic pentameter when we think of, you know, rhythm in English. It's not necessarily that kind of um, syllable type rhythm. Uh, but there is definitely a more artful craft to the Hebrew side than there is in the English, yeah. Yes? Is Do we use termino the terminology like chiasm to describe the melodic? Well, that's not exactly melodic. It's yeah, no, that... The, the chiasm, um, if found in the Psalms, I think it's, I believe it's present in Psalms. Now it's showing my ignorance here. I, I don't know how, freak, how common it is in the Psalms. Um, but the chiasm, I do not think would, would have anything to do with the rhythm or the meter of it. It has to do with the content and how the, okay. the content is related to each other. Okay. Yeah, building so to... So it's something that would be more... It's a literary feature. Okay. Yeah. Would the common... They just naturally thought that way. So yes, they would have known to, to, to think and look for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, Psalm 119 is an acrostic. I'm sure y'all have been, you know, you're aware of that. If you look at Psalm 119, it is the longest. But each section of eight verses begins with a new Hebrew letter. So if ever you want to memorize the Hebrew alphabet, just flip through Psalm 119 and memorize those first letters there. Um, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, and it goes on and on and on. And each eight verses, within that, every line began with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in the first eight verses, all each one starts with an Aleph. And then the next eight verses all begin with a Bet. And then so on and so forth. So it's acrostic. It just goes through the alphabet. So you see that kind of um, literary use uh, technique there. The Psalms are quoted by the New Testament more than anything in the Hebrew Bible is. It, they are everywhere. Hebrews quotes it a lot, and, and other places do too. Uh, some, some background issues here. So the authorship is attributed largely to King David because a lot of these are, uh, you'll see even verses, uh, just the first the first two. Now, you notice chapters 1 and 2 don't have inscriptions. That will be important in a minute. Uh, 3 and 4, they're, they're of David. 5 is of David. 6 is of David. Uh, and, and so King David is attributed authorship in a lot of these. Uh, Asaph as well. Technically, it's pronounced Asaph, but we've anglicized that to Asaph. Uh, the sons of Korah, Ethan the Ezraite, uh, Solomon, and Moses. So the oldest one is believed to be um, Moses's Psalm 90. Uh, as old as 1400 BC. And then the latest one could be uh, Psalm 137. Flip over to Psalm 137. If you read verse 1 of Psalm 137, what does it sound like it's describing? What time in the history of Israel? Exile. Exile, that's exactly right. They're sitting down by the waters of Babylon. After Babylon had conquered them, they had been exiled into Babylon, and there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, because they were no longer there. So this one is possibly the latest one, uh, as late as about 400 uh, B.C. So that's about a thousand-year span that we find here in the book of Psalms. There is no formal outline in terms of content uh, throughout the Psalms. 
There are some attempts to describe how books one through five relate to each other, but basically it is the five book divisions. And you'll see them. You get to, let's flip, uh, flip over to 41 to 42. Uh, each one ends with a doxology. So the end of book one there is uh, 41.13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. End of book one. And then book two begins. Flip over to the end of uh, book two, 72 to 73. 72 verse 20 was probably not a part of that psalm. 72.20 says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That's probably not a line in the song. That's the editors, the, the ones who compiled this are putting that note in there. Prayers of David are ended, and then book three begins there with the psalm of Asaph in 73. Uh, so I just we'll just stop there looking at those two. Um, back to Psalms 1 and 2, you'll notice they don't have uh, the that inscription at the beginning. They seem to serve, Psalms 1 and 2, serve as an introduction to the whole book. And then the last five psalms seem to kind of wrap up the whole book. So the book seems to be book-ended, if you will. Now, psalm 1 introduces the purpose of the compilation. Book 1, excuse me, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It sounds a lot like a proverb. And it talks about how uh, the, the righteous one is rooted in God's word and grows uh, in, in righteous, it grows in righteousness and wisdom. Uh, Psalm two gives the main message, and now now this um, is often this is extrapolated into an, explaining how the books relate to each other. Um, but but if you want to try to put together the meaning of the five books into a cohesive unit, which we'll do as speculation here shortly, then it's important to look at Psalm two as the anchor of the content that says Christ rules, God is king. So. The wisdom, the invitation to sit under God's uh, word in Psalm 1, and then the message reiterate or, or emphasized off the bat that God is king. So if, if you take those as the introduction, it makes sense to read the rest of the Psalms in light of them. All right, let's keep going. Reading the Psalms. Many Psalms have a small note before the first verse. This note should not be taken as part of the inspired scripture. Uh, this, again, you see is coming from Matt Bradley. Uh, we do believe they are reliable, so we cautiously accept them. So there you see Matt Bradley's um, take. Is that they are not inspired, but they are reliable, so we take them and use them. Uh, the Psalms move from lament to praise generally. So if you were to do a um, chart, you know, like a dot chart, from lament to, to praise, it's going to be an upward trend uh, from, from lamenting, uh, honest lament and, and crying out to more and more praise generally toward the end. Um, Bradley, go ahead, he goes ahead and says, don't even try to find a relationship between the five books. I'll say it might be helpful, so we'll look at one, uh, an attempt here shortly. But he says, instead of looking at those, look here, these two helpful guidelines that he gives. For approaching the Psalms. First of all, understand the purpose and the use of each individual Psalm. So we'll look at the types of Psalms here shortly, but you see that right in the center of the page, uh, the kinds of Psalms. So first of all, identify the purpose and the type of the Psalm. And then second, find Christ in the Psalms. And uh, those two tips will help you really get, I think, a lot of the richness right out of the Psalm pretty quickly. 
And then it's valuable to sit and meditate with it, memorize it, soak in it, uh, and then get even more from it. But uh, if you do those two things, if you can do those two things, um, you you will have gotten, I think, a lot of the meat out of a psalm um, off the bat. Uh, Calvin has some great quotes about the psalms. Here's one of them. He says, the, uh, the psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. So if you want to figure out what your soul is composed of, go read the psalms. And, he, and they, they sketch out for you what the soul is, is like. It's a guide to piety for the believer. In particular, the books of psalms provides guidance for the Christian in four areas. Mediation, expostulation, prayer, and song. This came from uh, Benjamin Shaw's article on Ligonier.com. Um, now, I read that, and I looked up expostulation, and I have already forgotten what that means. Um, <laughs> anybody know that? Exposition? It's, it's not exposition. I believe it is a pleading with God, um, leaning on his promises. You look it up. Thank you. Yeah, I believe it's a, it's a pleading with God, um, taking him at his word. Okay. 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 I disregarded Yeah. So, so sometimes we're uncomfortable when we're reading through the Psalms because the psalmist kind of cries out in a way that's like, "God, here!" Like, almost in an accusatory tone. We're not. We don't like doing that. Maybe that's a Western non-confrontational inclination. Uh, but I think this, the Psalms teach us how to do that well when we cry out to God with, you know, in honesty with what's going on in our hearts and our lives. Now there are also, I'm going to read to you a few things that aren't on the, the sheet here. These are um, other things that you do with the Psalms. These are from Matt Bradley's handout. He says several things. First, we should use them to praise God. We should sing them as families and as congregations. You can't sing better words. There's no song that's been written since then that is better than the Psalms. These are inspired. These are God's very words. Second, memorize them. They are beautiful poetry and as the word of God, worthy to be memorized. I don't think that we commit scripture to memory enough because it's right in our pocket. Why would I memorize it when I can just pull out the ESV app? Third, find comfort in them. Christians are too often looking anywhere but God's word for comfort. The Psalms are very accessible and beautiful expressions of God's love and goodness toward his people. Fourth, learn to pray from the Psalms. Using scripture in our prayers is the surest way to pray well. It's using God's own words to pray. It's praying back to him. So those are some helpful things to do with the Psalms. And if you'd like, you can come and take a picture of that afterward. Have that on your phone. Or you can memorize it. All right, let's look at the different kinds of psalms. Obviously, covering all 150 psalms in, uh, in one lesson is impossible. So let's try to just get a survey here. Uh, I have underlined the psalms that we have recently um, had in our, in our pulpit on Sunday mornings uh, over the last couple months, just so that you get a sense. I did a lot of laments. And that's, that's intentional. I think it's helpful for us to, to figure out how do we, when things are hard, how do we cry out to God? And so uh, there are laments, which is different than complaining. Uh, it's, it's taking the things that are difficult and placing them in the hands of God who can handle them. And so it's a type of surrender and trust 
but also an honesty about what's going on. Uh, the second type, there's declarative praise. These are declaring God's praise for a particular event. And you find these in, um, you, just, you see some of those examples there. Descriptive praise is related to a general event. And a subset of this would be the nature uh, psalms or the creation psalms. And that's just praising God generally for his character, for, um, for general events such as creation. Uh, number five, there are royal psalms. Talk about kingship. These are crucial when you start looking for Christ in the psalms. Uh, there are imprecatory psalms. These are the ones that we have a really hard time knowing what to do with because they call down judgment and punishment against our enemies, such as dashing the infants upon the rocks. Uh, so we're not going to get into how to deal with those tonight, but that is a type of psalm. Uh, wisdom psalms, you see there, Psalm 1 is listed as a wisdom psalm. These are those that really uh, prop up uh, showing a Christian what a wise, mature Christian life looks like. There are songs of trust, like Psalm 46. Psalm 46 uh, is from the sons of Korah. And it says, God is our strength, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble at its swelling. And it's simply leaning and trusting upon God more and more and ending with verses 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress beautiful expression of trust in God. So when you feel like you're not quite there trusting in the Lord, go read Psalm 46 and be encouraged and let the psalmist speak words for your heart uh, that will then enable you to trust the Lord as well. There are songs of ascent. You see that Psalms uh, 120 through uh, 134. These are uh, songs that they sang as they would go up to, uh, as they would ascend the hill of the Lord. Uh, one of the one of the famous ones is Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. One that was mentioned at the beginning, Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, a, a point I need to make about Psalm 121, we think that our help comes from the hills when we read that. The point is that help does not come from the hills. I lift up my eyes to the hills. That's where the pagans would offer sacrifices. Where does my help come from? Not the hills, from the one who is above it all, from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Um, so, and then the Messianic Psalms. Now that, that category is not exclusive. It's not like if it's a Messianic, it can't be a, a royal psalm, or if it's a Messianic, it can't be a, an imprecatory or a song of trust. Uh, but these are just some that specifically seem to anticipate that Messianic role of Christ as king. Uh, there in the Psalms. So those are listed. Especially, you, you think of Psalms 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my um, right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Those types of psalms that, that are very tightly uh, connected to Christ explicitly in the New Testament. Thoughts before we get into the message and the theology. 
So as you're reading the Psalms, it's helpful to just identify. Go ahead and identify what type of psalm is this. And there are really helpful tools out there that'll tell you what are the, the different parts of a lament, what are the different parts of a royal psalm, what are the different parts of a wisdom or song of trust. Um, so, And then if you can identify some of those parts, you kind of know what to expect. The message and the theology. So Psalm 1 uh, introduces uh, that basically the Psalms are, are teaching how to live according to the Torah. They are showing and illustrating what a faithful, obedient child of God looks like. And it's one who is rooted in God's word, one who is uh, dependent upon the Lord. And so someone kind of introduces that and it's divided into five books. The thought is maybe it was divided into five books to replicate the five books of the Torah. Um, I'm not sure that there's a one-to-one correlation between the content of book one with Genesis or the content of book two with Exodus, but uh, it's at least that five-part structure. And it teaches how to experience the abundant life of blessing. You think of back to uh, Deuteronomy, the latter chapters in Deuteronomy that talk about blessings and curses and those who live um, according to these, these benefits that God has given through the, through the law and obedience, they find great blessing. And these are the blessings that we find not just uh, in creation, but also in specifically in redemption that we find in Christ as it is anticipated even in the Psalms. The main message of the Psalms, this is uh, according to uh, the, looking at Psalm 1 and 2 as the, the prologue for the rest of it. Uh, Psalm 2 tells us that the main message is that God is king, specifically our God is king, and our king is coming. So it's talking about God's reign. It's also talking about the fact that we're waiting for God's reign. And it's talking about the fact that this is not just some other God, this is our God. And so the coronation that begins Psalm 2 is reaffirmed in the Davidic setting in book 1. And in book 2, it's transferred to Solomon. And then in book three, it closes on a different note, questioning whether covenant faithfulness is over. Flip over to Psalm 89. I think Ethan the Ezraite is one of my favorite psalmists. Because his psalms are so puzzling. So you look at Psalm uh, 89, I mean, flip over to uh, 89 verse 10. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. What is that talking about? Well, that's that gets back to some of the, um, the cultural milieu, understanding Rahab was the name for a sea monster. And so this is talking about God's power over, again, those waters of chaos that we've heard multiple times throughout the Psalms. But that's not why we're here. Flip to the end of Psalm 89. Verse 49, there's been this Davidic covenant promise that seems to be uh, depended upon throughout the Psalms up to this point. And then here at the end of book three, uh, Ethan the Ezraite, his psalm is put here and it says, verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which, or excuse me, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? It's, it's crying out saying, Lord, it seems like these promises that you made of kingship, you, you know, you said you're going to reestablish your, your, you said your, your, the king is coming and the government will be on his shoulders and we're not seeing it. So is your steadfast love done? It's that questioning of, of the covenant faithfulness. And this is crying out when things really are difficult and they don't quite see the hope. So that's at the end of book three. And then 
So really the question is, all right, so we have these promises and we see what life under these promises is like with all these Davidic Psalms and this reliance upon him, these, uh, these promises fulfilled and these victory hymns. And then you get to the end of book three and now the question is, but what if all that's taken away? Will it be taken away? Is our God going to go back on his promises? And then books four and five can answer that question in two ways, faith and obedience. Faith and obedience are how we live in the absence of the messianic king. They know God's promises aren't going to fail. They know that king is coming. But how do we live until he comes? Faith and obedience. And that's what you see emphasized in books four and five. Again, this is a, a speculation of trying to pull out um, what appear to be big themes in books four and five. Uh, in this case, in particular, by uh, Mark Futado. Uh, this is his understanding of how to read the books one through five together. And so he says, uh, right column, top point, the faith called for in book four is a faith that obeys in book five. And this obedience finds particular expression in the proper worship of God as the grand doxology of Psalms 146 to 150 make clear. And so you see the Psalms of Ascent, which are part of uh, the 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 worship, the obedience and worship. And then you see all these doxologies that are used right at the end of the Psalms. Uh, if you've not looked at those last few Psalms just together, go look at them right now. They are um, doxologies. Great is the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's, that's everyone, 146 through 150 starts with praise the Lord. These are doxologies, worship, and this is what all this leads to. That's what all the theology leads to. That's what all the, the living in difficulty leads to, is worship the Lord. There's also an emphasis, of course, on the Torah in Psalms 119. Now, uh, Psalm 119, excuse me. In Psalm 119, I, there are a handful, and only a handful of verses of the 176 verses, only a handful do not mention the Torah. I, I dare you to try to find one. A verse that does not mention God's law or his commands or his statutes. And it's teaching you this is, think about God's law, meditate on it, lean upon it. It's a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. How does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Right, those, the, the the value, the fruitfulness of God's word. This is that, that call to faith and obedience that books four and five really drive home. And then there's also the talk of the messianic king who's going to come by God's promise. Psalm 118, uh, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know that phrase. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest as Jesus comes into, up to Jerusalem. Okay, thoughts about this before we get into approaching the New Testament? Let's look at Christ and the Psalms. Uh, just a couple examples we'll pull out that are uh, famous. Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 22-1. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 22-1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So question, are these about David or are these about Jesus? Yes, they are about David and Jesus. And you have to understand that's the beauty of God's inspired revelation and the progressive revelation that we have as we see the fullness unveiled. We're able to see back 
uh, into the depths of these truths uh, now that we see Christ fulfilling it. Christ even said, he, he explained on the road to Emmaus, let me interpret for you how all these things point to me. And that's referring to the Psalms. The Psalms too anticipate Christ. And uh, let's see, let's read this uh, second point under the, approaching the New Testament. While the kingship psalms that focus on the human king certainly referred to David and his descendants in their original context, psalms like Psalm 2 clearly point forward to the coming of Jesus, the ultimate messianic king who is the begotten son against whom the nations raged, but who will inherit the nations. And... You have to remember these psalms move from lament to praise generally, and there's a lot of difficulty, and there's a lot of broken hearts, and there's a lot of um, crying out. There's a lot of suffering in the psalms. It is in the suffering and the glory of Jesus that the fullness of such psalms is displayed. We did an exercise last week reading Job where you say, imagine Christ saying this. And it, it, you, you, the theology is there. You can see the fullness of this passage comes to light when Christ says it. Same can be said of a lot of the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That whole Psalm can be um, understood in, in such depth now that we look at it in light of Christ. And so the question is, do you see Christ in the Psalms? Uh, one person said, either Christ is not in the Psalms or he is in every Psalm. And we read it as, as Christ is in every psalm, and, and we see how they anticipate and point forward to and start to paint the fullness of what Christ does for us and the person of Christ. And uh, Futado's answer here at the very last bullet point on the page is not only can each individual psalm be read as messianic, but also the book as a whole is a portrait of Christ. The flow of the book from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory, reveals to us a pattern of Christ's life and of our destiny as we are united to him by grace through faith. So when you read the Psalms, be looking for Christ's suffering and be looking for how he understands your suffering and how there is glory that awaits and resurrection that comes and that leads you to praise in the midst of the most atrocious trials. Because you can praise God as Christ did as he faced his own death uh, for us. That's all I have for you from the Psalms tonight. Any concluding thoughts or comments or questions before we sing our last two songs? All right. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have cared for us, not just in a legal sense of declaring us righteous, and certainly for that we are grateful, and without that we are doomed. But we thank you that you have cared for our growth and our maturity, that you would give us books that guide our worship, that guide our hearts and our souls and our minds to see Christ in a great light, to worship when things are difficult to learn how to cry out to you. Would we commit these things to memory so that we might learn not to sin against you, that we might grow in increased trust upon you. We thank you for your word. Would we be people 
who know that we hear you speak as we read your word, as we lean upon your spirit. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.